Hello, and welcome to CAA Conversations. I'm here today with Rebecca Easby and Colleen Denny. Rebecca Easby is Program Chair of Fine Arts and Associate Professor of Art History at Trinity Washington University in Washington, D.C. Colleen Denny is Professor of Art History and Gender and Women's Studies in the Gender and Women's Studies program at the University of Wyoming. And today, they'll be talking about teaching art history in an interdisciplinary context. So, without further ado, I'm going to hand the conversation over to these two. Thank you. The, um, the interesting thing about the interdisciplinary study approach, it's something that Colleen and I have both done, but in slightly different ways, I think. Um, and it is sort of interesting. Uh, we actually met at a seminar to do with interdisciplinary studies, um, and we were both art historians in the midst of a bunch of historians and English professors. So it's been quite an interesting uh, situation for us to figure out um, how this would you know, play out in our research. And that's not the only classes we teach in common because we also both teach a history of women artists class. Yes. So not only are we looking at our history, we're looking at the history of women, the history of women artists, and specifically we both work in the Victorian period. So we also have to focus on that sort of history and literature and culture. So it's pretty multifaceted in terms of what we cover. Right. Well, I think a lot of the things that you do, particularly in contemporary, because I know we also both teach a contemporary art class or have done, and that also is something that lends itself to interdisciplinary approaches. But the thing I think I've found over the years is that the more I teach, the more interdisciplinary I become. Yes. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, it's definitely true. Um, that there's so much more, and it it engages the students in such a more profound way than it does to just put a painting up on a screen and say, oh, look at the color. <laughs> right. right. Um, one of the struggles I have in doing this, it, 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 because it is, there are so many more demands, um, in terms of how I have to approach things in terms of teaching gender and women's studies course, we courses, we have a mantra, and that is race, class, sexuality, sexual orientation, ethnicity, disability. So I have to do all of those things in the context of looking at art through a gendered lens, no matter what class I am teaching. So that makes it even more of a challenge in terms of making sure I'm addressing all of those voices all of the time. Um, and so it if you have been doing that and have suggestions for ways we can go forward, I would be so happy to entertain them. I've really been struggling with, you know, trying to be as comprehensive as possible, particularly with this generation of students who are so astute and aware of what's going on in the world in terms of gender issues. Um, and in terms of particularly with things like the Women's March, how that's brought to the fore a lot more, um, you know, very much contemporary ideas about what's going on in women's lives. It's true, and I think, but at the same time, I think that the students, they're very aware and they're very engaged, but at the same time, there's a certain amount of um, symbolism and things that exist within the context of women's movements. And I was thinking about it because of the, the thing that you did for Take Back the Night at University of Wyoming, where you brought the woman in on the white horse. 
right. um, wearing the white clothing. And, you know, my students, for example, they were all very interested in the election, but they didn't really understand the symbolism of the white part of the pantsuits. Um, right. And so you have to go back and pull out all of the visual imagery in order to explain to them that this is something that's traditional uh, and should be maintained and understood in a broader context than just, you know, whether or not it shows up well in front of the blue background in a debate. <laughs> I've missed you, Rebecca. <laughs> but it's true. I mean, this is a big issue. We had a big discussion in one of my classes about this um, because this was something that they didn't really understand the context of. And so we have to go back and really start to look at that. And this is one of the things is, you know, students today live in this very, very visual culture. And they see things, but they don't really understand how it relates to something else. And so by using the art you can help them to make all these relationships absolutely and yeah i just taught that class again this spring this is the visual culture of gendered activism i'm calling it now but um again what happened in the same way i did it before was my students are learning all of that history they're learning all of the visual culture but we're paired with a recognized student organization who while they are interested in doing this activist work do not have the history and so that causes all kinds of problems so I, I, I wish there were a way to say you know if you are a student organization and you are doing this work you should really be taking these classes to prepare you to do the work you want to do because it, it it is it is it's like well what is the symbolism of the pussy hat right, right. Um, and um, there's you know I have students now who just are just hor horrified by the pussy hat now and, and think it's not inclusive enough in terms of what it's representing. So, you know, there we go. We're, we're getting into the things that we've seen historically in terms of the factioning of different women's feminist groups in terms of what's acceptable and what's not. Um, right. So, yeah, yeah, how do we get, get around that and how do we make sure that they're getting that history? Um, one of the challenges I'm having, and it, it has just started to be a shift in the last five years or so, I think it's generational, is in teaching the Victorian Women's Lives course, my students are much less prepared to do the art history than they used to be. And so the students come to it from either an art history background, a literature background, or a women's studies background, but they may not all come in with all three. So how do you ground them in all of those disciplines? Um, and, and that's what I'm really struggling with right now is how to incorporate more art history. I mean, I, I do things thematically. I'm not remembering how you do your Victorian women's course, but I, I do things thematically. So we do, you know, engagement, marriage, um, widowhood, and we, we do that in terms of a visual um, kind of palette, and then we read a novel about it. Um, but all of this is grounded in the history. I still use Altic's book, Victorian People and Ideas. So do we. But yeah, I mean, it's great. It's still, it's still solid. I mean, it's, it's not good for women, but you know, we can fill in. Um, but you know, to give them that big, big picture. Um, but then just, you know, how do I find time to then go back and do more work with them in terms of 
analyzing specific works of art. So that's what I'm trying to work on now is how to how to incorporate more of that into the class because we are spending a lot of time analyzing text. And while I present and analyze images, I don't feel like they've got enough time to do that themselves. And I would like to incorporate more of that into the class too. Because when they come to their final papers, they often just don't have the skills they need to do, you know, a constructed 10 page paper on a topic about, you know, art. Right. So, you. Well, we do it ours. Ours is a little different because we're not focusing just on women because, of course, I'm team teaching this. This is something that we put into the curriculum um, many years ago. And I am very fortunate to have a colleague in the history department who's also a Victorianist. And so we structure ours thematically, but there's a section on history, there's a section on women, there's a section on government, because my colleague is a Gladstone um, scholar. Um, and so we kind of do it to our own strengths. And we do all, actually a whole section on art and culture, because that's my section. Um, and so then we do the same thing. We work at it thematically. When we do history, for example, or women, we use the visual images as a way of giving a picture to what we're actually discussing in class, which makes it a lot more clear to the students. That's one thing I found over the years is that you can talk to them until they're blue in the face about how you don't, the people in the Victorians, you know, they threw you out of the house if you got pregnant. But when you see all those pictures of those, you know, young women being with infants being thrown out into the snow, it gives it a different kind of a visual character for them. Um, and so then they get a little of the analysis when we do the art and culture section. So it works a little differently for us. But yeah, I, I understand what you're saying because it is actually more difficult to teach. These days, the student, um, my colleague and I have had many discussions and we've changed the books. We've done all different kinds of things to try to deal with it. But the thing is, is that the students still actually like it. I mean, the course still fills every time we teach it. Uh, and they are really interested in it because, of course, then they come back and say, you know, wow, they have the same problems that we do and they didn't have a better solution. So how do we think we're going to fix them, which I always think is an interesting comment because certainly it's true. Yeah, yeah that okay. is that is the beauty of the Victorian period. It really does resonate for for our students. Right. Yeah, I actually when I have them do the Altic reading, um, I then punctuate it with what you're talking about. I do an overview image lecture. Right. where I cover all of those areas. Um, you know, we do Ford Max Brown's work, you know, we talk about the worker, we, you know, we do, we do the pre-Raphaelites, talk about what happens at the end of the century in art and culture and do all that. I'm just trying to find, I've got one really good reading that does a feminist positioning argument for um, a Rossetti painting of Proserpine, and it's really an interesting read, and I, I want to do more work with that, because what it does is to teach them that, yeah, you can look at an image and you can come up with a feminist point of view, but you don't necessarily have to, but how do you go about doing that, and how do you find the material to help you prove that feminist positioning, and it's um, a really short article, but a really good one in terms of um, addressing, you know, those the, the multifacetedness of how we get out of work of art 
um, from a feminist perspective, which is what I want the students to be doing by the end of the semester in their own papers. Right. But yeah, I, and you're not doing that because... No, uh, we're not trying to get at the same thing, but we're trying to get at an understanding of the issues of the period and then how they still relate to us today, because clearly the Victorians are the foundation of you know the way our society works. And so we really have to think um, try and figure out ways to get them to engage in that as a concept because you know the fact of the matter is Victorianism isn't exactly taught in you know history in schools and so it's usually a topic that's pretty new to them uh, and so it's an important idea to get across to explain how all these things kind of come together and the Victorian you know, for me, Victorian idea was really my first sort of, in, you know, introduction to interdisciplinary teaching. You know, I'd always been really interested in, and I did an interdisciplinary PhD dissertation, and, you know, so that's nothing unusual for me, but at the same time, it's not something that would have been typical in a classroom. Uh, and so that, I think, is really interesting, because I do think the students respond a lot better when they understand what's going on. Yeah, and there's an argument to be made, too, that art history itself is inherently interdisciplinary, right? We can't do the art without the history. We can't do the history without the art. Um, right. It's a symbiotic relationship. One contextualizes the other, and that's certainly how I've always taught survey, um, although I don't get to teach that anymore. Yeah, um, I still do, and I don't think a lot of people teach survey that way. I think that's an interesting comment, because I do teach survey that way. And, you know, as far as I'm concerned, you can't really understand what the whole Renaissance was about unless you understand things like the Black Death and the impact on society and how society changed from that. Um, but the, a lot of people don't seem to do that necessarily. So I try really hard to do that. I think it's important for the students to get that context. Yeah, last time, um, the last round I did this with a colleague and we decided to have two sections of surveys, smaller classes, and do more innovative things, like instead of trying to do the whole march, like use one specific work of art as the focus for each unit, but also um, to spend time doing really good readings. So we did um, that lovely book by Ross King, Michelangelo and the Pope's Ceiling, which is, uh -huh. gives you the whole religious context for the Sistine Chapel Ceiling. It's an awesome book. Um, and it also introduces them to a lot of different approaches to art history, and that's what we did. We did sort of, oh, here's the biographical approach that you're seeing in terms of how Ross King is reading Michelangelo. Here's the psychological approach. And so we paired it with the Barnett book so that they're getting those methods. This is another thing that I'm really struggling with. It's like how to give them methods, right? Right. Them, um, interpret the material in a, a significant way, because I, I just taught the history of women artists class and oh, it was just really hard because a lot of them were just flailing. <laughs> um, I don't know if that was my teaching or what was going on, but I don't know how you do yours, but when I do mine, I do um, both representations of women in art and the sort of march, right? The survey from Renaissance yeah. present of women artists with a real concentrated focus on contemporary women artists because a lot of these students are art students and I want them to know who their ancestor, their most immediate ancestors are. But I have one student who wanted to go do uh, her final paper on representations of liberty. Mm -hmm. 
And that wow. was super hard to yeah. help her focus because she had no background, right? right. Had, we had done no methods. She had never heard of Caesar Reaper's iconology. You know, she, she didn't really know how to grapple with it. And I was trying to lead her through that and it just made me think, okay, what can I go back and do to make this right. better in terms yeah, of- Yeah, I do, I do yeah. my women artists a little differently because I do a bit of the march and I do representations of women, but I tend to do the march with instead of like, here are 15 women artists that you've never heard of. Um, I do them by what I call case studies. And so each period I pick out a person that is interesting and there's a lot about, you know, one of the major figures in the history of women artists. And we do it as a kind of a sociological thing like, you know, what were the conditions of this woman's life that let her become an artist? You know, going back to a sense, the Nachlin article about why are there no great women artists? So this is a question of what were the conditions in which these people lived? And so we do history. We do a lot about dress in my women artist class. We talk a lot about clothing and the way that would have defined the way women did things. And we kind of do that up until the present day. And then when we get to the present day, we look at people who are really heavily involved in either feminism or civil rights or both. So my focus is, you know, my, my case studies are people like, you know, Faith Ringgold and Judy Chicago and all of those type of, you know, sort of feminist civil rights people so that we can look at those issues involved in this as well. Um, and that's that's been very successful for me. I mean, obviously you have to gear some of this to your students because I don't have art students. People are taking mine because it's either in the women's studies minor or they're taking it because they have to take an upper level seminar course in the gen ed curriculum and this is approved. And so they think this is, I guess, the lesser of the evils. Um, and so I, I really try to make it in a way so that they're actually gonna learn something out of all of this, other than just here's the name of a woman artist that I've never heard of. Right, yeah, I do, I do a, the, that class in terms of, we do all those significant readings at the beginning, like the Nochlin one, and I use that lovely Power of Feminist art book that right. Brown because um, it's got a lot of good essays in it too so you're looking sort of at the historiography of teaching the history of women artists course you know and yeah. looking at all those questions and then we do we do a whole section on education women's art education which for my students is great because a lot of them are art education majors or art majors so um, that really resonates with them too but yeah I, I the students have actually said to me they'd like more case studies because I, I kind of do it on purpose in terms of overwhelming them with how many women artists there are because I want to make a point. <laughs> well, yes, there is that. But. <laughs> it's like this is, this is the tip of the iceberg. But, um, yeah, there are lots of ways to do it. I might do it differently in the future. I, I was able to do case studies on some of their favorite artists, like Frida Kahlo, um, and yeah, we do spend a lot of time with Judy Chicago, um, but that might work better for the rest of, of it, because it's so hard to get through all of them in any kind of significant way, um, but I really do like Whitney Chadwick's book still, because right. she do that she does talk about the history she does contextualize all of it she's got great chapters on 
um, you know, those different topics of, well, what happens when, you know, we start to ask um, about the women's building, right, in the 1893 Columbia Exposition and what kinds of questions does that raise for us? Um, I think she does a good job of that and, and I'm able to use that text and, and really get the students to, to respond to it so that we do a lot of discussion, a lot of, um, of their participation in terms of critical analysis. So I think in terms of when I think about what I know that I'm doing well in terms of interdisciplinarity, I know that they are getting the good critical analysis in terms of reading. Mm-hmm. Um, but I'm still not so sure they are translating that to a good analysis of the works of art themselves. <laughs> does that make sense? Yes, it does. But, you know, I have to say, I'm not totally concerned with that. I mean, I know that's important in a college context, but I think it's more important that they get the the understanding and the visuals and how it how it engages them in the actual subject going forward. I mean, I actually, um, you know, as you know, I do all these things at the National Gallery in the summer, which are done for K through 12 teachers. And they're really interesting because they're there to learn how to put art history into the K through 12 curriculum. And they periodically, they like report back what they've done. And then the National Gallery sends it out to the people who were working um, in the um, Institute. And there was one that was really interesting where this woman, she was using the George Caleb Bingham, um, Fur Traders Descending the Missouri, as a way of teaching her class about westward expansion. And her class got really hung up on the fact that they didn't think that the animal in the boat was a bear, which nobody thinks the animal in the boat is a bear because it doesn't look like a bear at all. Um, But these kids actually went through and discovered that there's a particular kind of fox with a black coat. And they came up with pictures of it, and they decided that this thing is a black fox. And it was pretty impressive and pretty um, persuasive. And this is a bunch of fourth graders. And those people are going to go away, and they're going to come back and say, wow, I really like art. I'm going to go to college, and I really want to take art. And that, to me, is really important. Yeah. And it's, a, it's that we are doing some of this. I, I work in concert with um, the museum curators and pull works of art relevant to the classes I teach. And we do a experiment with them where we take them into um, the teaching classroom at the museum and have them look at works of art in pairs and talk about them for five minutes. No information about them at all. Just talk about them, work through them, see if they can figure out what's going on in them, because mm-hmm. I think really helps them with their um, their visual skills. But also what you said at the beginning is, and I do this in my gender humanities class, which is a more broad-based class, but to say to them, you are visual people. You interpret images every day. Right. To try and away from that sense of them being afraid of thinking they can interpret an image. It's like we interpret people's faces. We, in, we interpret media every day. We are bombarded by it. Um, and so I, that, that exercise is really good because they're actually looking at real works of art and that gives them a real kind of sense of confidence in the looking, the sort of engaged looking um, experimentation. Right. So. Well, and I mean, there are a lot of things that you can do to engage them that way. I have a contemporary seminar as well. And their final project is they have to uh, pick an issue 
in contemporary art. So it could be censorship or, you know, whether or not your materials have to hold up or, you know, I, ha I give them a whole list of issues. And then they have to pick a, a topic within that and write about that particular topic. So they could pick, you know, a censorship court case or something to do with art. But it allows them to put art into the context of something that's important to them. Yeah, that sounds great. I don't get to teach contemporary art just by itself anymore, but certainly we always spend a lot of time on censorship for one. But yeah, there are a lot of different topics um, to cover in that regard. That's a really good way of doing it. Yeah, give them something broad and then let them look at the art in that context. Yeah, this year, um, I taught it in the fall, this past fall, and this year I had an awful lot of people who were interested in environmental things, and I had a lot of people who chose to do artists who were working within the environmental movement and to try to bring all that together. So it's interesting to me how that changes over time, what the students, you know, a few years ago censorship was very hot. Nobody did censorship this year. Uh, and so that was just a really interesting way of trying to bring them in and again to try to bring this sense of you know art doesn't exist in a vacuum it exists right. within a society and, right. you know and it needs to have the context of the society in order for you to really understand what the artists are doing absolutely well thank you both this has been fascinating it's such a great conversation and I really appreciate you joining us oh well it's interesting to do